Welcome to What the Midwife Said, the podcast that's all about how babies and families are made. My name is Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, author of the best-selling memoir Hard Pushed, and I'm the midwife, in case you were wondering. In this series, I'm having honest conversations with some incredible guests, taking a deep dive headfirst into their experiences of fertility, pregnancy, birth, and parenting. That sheer <laughs> being in your mind and in your body and in a horrible place, and then once, one second it's just done. Yeah, and right before it's done, you really want to poo yourself as well. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's so grim. It sounds like... Like, like a version of Wonder Woman lightning crotch. I quite like the idea of that. Perhaps that's my alter ego. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm going to be a woman. I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> and Jamie's like, calm down. I'm like, no, but I'm ready. And my mummy said to me when I said no, she went, look, lol, if they are offering you this. It means I think you're going to live and it means I think you've got a future. Yeah, you think, how am I going to squeeze out a whole <laughs> other organism from that small place? The first time round, it was... I was saying to the midwife, hey, I feel like I need to push, I need to push, something's just, you know, and it was a lot of, no, don't push, you're going to reverse everything, stop pushing, stop, literally shouting at me. I've walked out onto stage in front of thousands of people, I've, you know, I've done all sorts of crazy stuff, and my thing before I do anything scary is, you've grown two humans in your body, nothing scarier than that. We're exploring the way we see our bodies and our relationships, the choices we make as we build our families, and the highs and lows that those choices can bring. No judgment, no shame. Just what the midwife said. And I want you to join the conversation too. If you have any questions or you'd like to share your experiences, you can find me on social media, at Leah Hazard on Instagram, or at Hazard underscore Leah on Twitter. Just include the hashtag what the midwife said. Today's guest is Laura Thomas, host of the podcast Don't Salt My Game, and a registered nutritionist specialising in intuitive eating, health at every size, and non-diet nutrition. Laura has helped thousands of people develop a healthier relationship with eating, or as she puts it in her fantastic book, Just Eat It, she wants to help us all stop being weird about food. Follow your hunger, honor your hunger. It is sending you a message. The postpartum period is not the point to, to start restricting what you eat. Not all food goes in our stomach. Some of it goes in our heart because it feeds us up, you know, fills us up emotionally. And sometimes food can be um, comforting and um, reassuring, you know, when we've been through this really transformative experience. She gave birth to her son Avery last May and through her social media profile she's chronicled some of the challenges of her pregnancy, her experience of spending time in neonatal intensive care and how our maternity services can definitely make pregnant women and new mothers feel very weird about food. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Laura Thomas. Before we really sort of start officially, I was listening to your podcast this morning. I do this sort of like weird stalkerish research for every guest and try <laughs> to listen to most of what they've done if I can. And I was, this is completely off topic, but I was listening to you and I was like, 
oh my God, here's somebody with like almost the same weird accent I have. <laughs> there's like, I, I somehow, because you're based in London, I guess I sort of imagined you as, as being English, but there was like Scotland. And then I know from reading your book, you spent time in, is it Texas in America? Is that right? I, I, I lived in Texas and DC for a hot sack. And um, I spent two years in upstate New York as well. So kind uh-huh. of a little bit all over the map. Yeah. Did I see somewhere you were talking about your gran that lives in Scotland. Is that right? My grandma lives in the Highlands. I grew up in Aberdeen. Oh, wow. And lived there until I was 21. Yeah, then moved to the States and then moved down to London. So similar to me, but in a different order and yeah, like, different times. <laughs> yeah, reverse. <laughs> yeah, reverse. Very cool. All that aside, just because as I was listening, I was like, ah, oh, this is crazy. Um, all that aside, uh, thank you again for joining me today on the podcast. I know you you are incredibly busy, I can imagine, as you emerge from maternity <laughs> leave, such as it is in these weird times, trying to juggle baby with writing another book and uh, everything else that you do in your daily life. So what does life kind of look like for you these days? <laughs> well, it it's a bit hectic. Um, I am still officially on maternity leave, but have obviously been doing lots of bits and pieces for the book. Um, and it's thankfully it's starting to slow down a little bit, and I'm hoping that I can actually take some proper time off before I go back to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes at London Centre for Intuitive Eating. We're gearing up to launch a new training course for professionals. Um, we've got a new clinic space on the cards as well. So like a lot of stuff, um, you know, going on work-wise that I'm still overseeing. And then looking after a seven and a half month old who is teething and has just learned to crawl um, and is tearing around the house and trying to find ways to keep him entertained and engaged um, in between all the other bits that I'm trying to juggle. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm very, very, very fortunate that my husband is working from home and can kind of help me out, um, during the day and like you know if I just need 10 minutes to decompress he will hold the baby or if I need to jump on a quick work call he'll play with Avery for a little while so um really fortunate that that he can be flexible with his work because obviously we can't see anyone in the the minute we're in super super lockdown and our families all live quite away far away Mm -hmm. um so yeah, things are like the whole world is just weird right now though. So I I yeah. feel like in the grand scheme of things, I have it pretty good. So I am in absolutely no position to complain. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You know, for this podcast, I've spoken to so many women who are mums and who are dealing with responsibilities for kids of different ages. And every single woman says, I shouldn't really complain. I know I'm really lucky. (laughs) But actually, ah, you can tell everybody's just going like a little bit crazy underneath it all. And I think it's it's completely legit to recognise that. Yeah, Um, and I think it's about holding, you know, two realities at the same time. mm -hmm. I have things tough like things are are really hard for me and I know that I am 
really privileged in this situation at the same time like it's not this I try not to be so binary in my thinking because it's something that I'm always working on on, um, with clients on is trying to get out of that dichotomous black and white thinking so yeah trying to practice a little bit of that myself yeah it's hard isn't it to to feel that you can be lucky and grateful but also having a hard time um is is very true and you mentioned there uh writing this next book, but let's rewind a little bit. Uh, I've just finished reading your, I guess, your first book, Just Eat It, yeah, which I really enjoyed and uh, really is a kind of manifesto for and a guide to this thing called intuitive eating. And I, I love the way you sum up this approach as basically learning to be less weird about food. I think that's <laughs> that's a bit of kind of jargon that we can all understand. But just before we kind of move a little bit more into your journey with that and um, how that affected your journey through pregnancy, can you sum up for the listeners just a bit more about what intuitive eating is and what drew you to that approach? Yeah, so intuitive eating is a framework that is made up of 10 overarching principles. And it was devised by two dietitians in the mid 1990s. So it's nothing new. It's been around for quite some time, even though it's kind of having a bit of a moment or has been having a bit of a moment for the past couple of years. It is um, something that's been around for a while and is starting to build up a little bit of research evidence behind it as well. And the framework, the way that I like to describe sort of what the framework does is for for most of us who've been socialized as women or girls, we have a lot of noise in our head about what constitutes a good food or a bad food or a healthy food or an unhealthy food. And there's a lot of back and forth and bargaining and negotiating with ourselves around, um, you know, if I eat this cookie, do I have to, you know, make up for it at the gym later? Do I have to do an extra run this week? Or, uh, you know, can I have the potatoes with dinner if I have bread with lunch? And, you know, there's just all of this like mental gymnastics going on around food and our bodies and exercise. By going through the intuitive eating process, what we are hoping to do is to just dial that noise way down so that we have more headspace and more freedom for our families, for our careers, for the things that um, are valuable and important to us, our our communities, our relationships, all of these kinds of things, rather than, you know, thinking about if the food that you have eaten has too many macros or calories or points in it. Yeah. So that is kind of the TLDR of intuitive eating. <laughs> and I mean, we could get into the, the, the various different principles, um, but, but essentially it is a framework for helping us repair our relationship with food and, and coming at food and our bodies from, um, with, with a more positive relationship. I love this. And I love that. I think, I mean, thank you so much for such a great summary of what is quite a complex field. And I think anything that can help a woman of today reduce the amount of noise inside her head about her body and her body image Mm. can only be a good thing. And coming from my point of view as a midwife and as a mother as well, 
I mean, pregnancy is a crazy time for women to have so much additional noise in their heads Mm. about their relationships with their bodies and with food. And at times, and for many of us, that noise really becomes deafening. There are so many messages about how you should look, how you should eat, how you should snap back afterwards, or Mm -hmm. should you feel great about yourself and embrace the changes to your body? So when you found out that you were pregnant, um, what were your kind of expectations from the outset about how you would navigate that journey with food and how maybe the maternity services would guide you with that as well? Yeah, I I mean, my experience going into pregnancy was informed a lot by my clinical practice. I've worked with a lot of pregnant people um, over the years and really unfortunately seen the damage that can be caused by antenatal services and postnatal services in terms of people's body image, the relationship with food. Um, you know, for for instance, I've had clients who were told to diet, restrict their food intake, and have lost weight while pregnant. Now, hopefully as a midwife, that raises some pretty mm-hmm. serious red flags for you. Mm-hmm. Nobody should be losing weight when they are pregnant. That is the opposite of what we want people to do. Um, and, and that, you know, can, can cause, um, you know, can put people at risk for nutritional deficiency, can, can cause um, uh, problems for the baby putting on enough weight and uh, growing adequately. So that's really not something that, that we would recommend. But because we have such a myopic focus on weight as an indicator of health, um, we yeah we we get very focused and caught up with weight when there are lots of other metrics of well-being and health um that that we could look at so i mm-hmm. i think with all of my experiences working with clients um kind of went into pregnancy maybe with my defenses up a little bit <laughs> um, yeah understandably i think yeah and and i i i am glad that um I'd I'd had some experience working with clients before going on my own pregnancy um, or going into my own pregnancy, because even though I'm in a smaller body and and hold a lot of body privilege, um, you know, I'm not in the, in inverted commas, overweight or obese category. um, But I still found a lot of the things that were said to me around weight and weight gain and what I should or shouldn't eat to be quite, um, I mean, incorrect for one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also kind of, um, I don't want to throw around the word triggering, but, but maybe, um, yeah, they were insensitive or, um, not coming from a person centered perspective. So Mm. can you uh, give an example? Can you remember something that was said that you thought, Oh, this really isn't very productive for me? Yeah, well, um, it, it was less what was, well, so I can think of a time, basically it's it's complicated, but midway through um, my pregnancy, I moved house and then had to move to a different NHS trust. So I had to go through rebooking, my rebooking appointment for a second time mm-hmm. because they couldn't just transfer 
for reasons unknown to me, couldn't just transfer my information from one trust to another. I'm sure it's something about me suing them or something like that. But um, basically, I I went to another booking appointment and I was told to get on the scales. And I know that the NHS patient charter says that I can refuse any um, test or treatment if if I don't want it. And I said, I, I don't want to get on the scales. I don't want to know my weight. I don't want a record of that. And I was basically told computer says no. And forced on the scales. Now I, I went on backwards. I didn't look at the number, but I knew that it was not good for my overall well-being to know that number. And I asked for a particular to be cared for in a particular way, and I was refused that. Mm. And that is completely um, out, you know, discordant with person-centered care and the NHS patient charter and my rights as a patient. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that felt like a violation in my pregnancy. And, and I know that that was a possibility when I stood up for myself because it, it happens time and time again to clients of mine who try and advocate for themselves. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was just one experience. But I found the whole maternity pathway. And again, my experience is slightly different because I changed trusts. But it, it, it just very much felt like a revolving door carousel machine. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't until I got um, on the home birth team um, that I had continuity of care and saw the same midwife more than once. And so I was about 26 weeks pregnant, I think, before I saw the same person twice. Okay. And when you made that decision to plan a home birth and you met your team, did you feel like there was something more holistic about that team or that approach that also extended to the way they discussed your body and just viewed you as a whole person? Do you feel like that was just an enormous sort of change of package and perspective at that point? It it was a huge relief. And I I should just give the caveat. First of all, I did not have my baby at home. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, everyone. (laughs) I did see that, but we'll come to that. Um, So, so yeah, just, I wanted to put it out there that, um, yeah, I I didn't have the baby at home, but having, I would not, um, have any qualms if I were to have a second baby about having the whole, you know, arranging my, um, care through the home birth track, if you will, because it was day and night for me in terms of how I was looked after. I was how I was spoken to, how I was listened to. And I think that's maybe even the key thing. Like I was listened to, <laughs> which, um, I, and, and I have to also give the caveat that, um, to begin with, I was in a really, really busy London hospital. And I understand that those services are really stretched and I, I'm absolutely not putting blame on any single individual. This is a system, a systematic issue. Mm-hmm. Um, not any one person that I dealt with. Um, but yeah, I was, 
you know, my thoughts and ideas were listened to. And um, I mean, my my midwife was incredible. I love her. <laughs> and, oh, that's so good to um, hear. Yeah, it just it, it was completely different when um, I was on that track. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I um, answered your question there. I can't actually remember. No, you did. No, it's it's all fascinating to me. And just hearing what you said earlier about not wishing to get on the scales and um, how that was met with a lot of resistance really resonates with me as somebody who is a very much a hospital-based midwife in a big, busy, quite institutional hospital, mm-hmm. because the way that all our sort of health records are kept and represented on our kind of online system mm-hmm. is that your BMI, your body mass index, is one of the primary identifying markers that always comes up along with your name your hospital number your your blood group your date of birth you know and and there's the BMI um and so I know that if somebody were to come through my service with that request or that preference not to have that be an identifying feature I can imagine the resistance that that would be met with um and it's unfortunate uh but not entirely surprising that you um, had to seek out a, a sort of alternative pathway in order for your um, needs to be met more holistically. So no, it, it all definitely makes sense. Mm. Yeah, and and I think you know it it, it is unfortunate um, that we are reduced down to a number on the scales, and that is how our maternity pathways are are dictated and determined. Um, you know, for example, if I were in a bigger body than I am, I wouldn't have been allowed a, a home birth or like that idea would never have even been entertained without, you know, going to head of midwifery and, and really advocating um, for for that approach to care. And that I can, you know, for a number of clients that I work with, that results in so much more stress and so much more pressure on the pregnancy um, when that's already a really high for a lot of folks it can be a a high anxiety um, time of their life at least I'm speaking from my own experience here as well I had a lot of anxiety especially in the first trimester before you know that you know you can that that everything is okay Um, and so having that additional layer of pressure and stress I think is often responsible for some of the poor outcomes perhaps associated with higher weight pregnancies rather than it being because of the weight in and of itself if that Mm, makes sense and that's what we see from from the literature is that that folks who experience weight stigma at the at the hands of healthcare providers however well-intentioned those people might be and I include myself as a healthcare provider in this and, and fully hold my hands up to say that you know that was the the model that I was trained in, and 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 I've certainly caused harm by trying to put people on diets and and shrink their body size. Um, the research shows us that that adding um, weight stigma mm-hmm. into um, you know any um, underlying condition is going to exacerbate anything that's underlying that's going on. Does that make sense? I'm not sure it if makes I complete sense. Very well. No, it makes complete sense. And I think as midwives and student midwives, I think we're very well versed in the potential adverse health outcomes that are perceived to be caused by higher body mass index or obesity. Um, but something that actually 
is never discussed as far as I'm aware, certainly not in, in my career or my training, is how the management and consideration of a woman's weight and her body size can in and of itself have an impact on her yeah. health outcomes. So that that is really fascinating and a really good bit of food for thought for anyone out there listening who's in that position. Yeah, and, and just on that, um, in case I don't know if you have a lot of um, midwives or student midwives listening. I'm going to assume that you do. Um, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> Hello out there, if that's you. But for any healthcare professional, in fact, who is working with pregnant folks, we... Uh, my clinic, London Centre for Intuitive Eating, have developed weight-inclusive training for um, not just pregnancy, but also fertility and gestational diabetes um, that is available as, um, so there's a, a video component where you can do, you, you basically you interrogate the, the NICE guidelines and look at the most up-to-date evidence around the relationship between weight and health as it pertains to pregnancy or fertility um, and gestational diabetes. And then um, looks at weight-inclusive recommendations. So things that we can do to help support uh, a healthy pregnancy regardless of your body size and how you can advocate for yourself in the maternity pathway um, when you know you might be deemed at quote high risk because of your body size um, how can you still you know if for instance you wanted to have um, you know if you had a particular uh, birth plan in mind that you wanted to pursue how can you make sure that you your um, care matches up with what you would like um, so basically what I'm trying to say is we have um, a guide for for navigating the the maternity pathway if you're in a bigger body um, and don't want to be told you know that your body is a problem or that your body mm-hmm. can't support your pregnancy or that um, you know you've been you felt that that your pregnancy has been labeled at high risk um, but you don't want to. So, for instance, um, one of my clients was sent to um, was given vouchers to go to Slimming World when she was pregnant. How can you avoid a situation like that and advocate for yourself um, during your, your pregnancy? So, we have those resources for anybody who is either a healthcare professional or an individual who's pregnant who just wants more support around those. So, if it's helpful, I can give you mm-hmm. the links to those to. Um, to check them out. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's definitely something to think about, I think, for midwives nowadays. I mean, certainly speaking for myself in the area that I live in, um, I believe that uh, the majority of women using our service are what would be classed as having a, a higher BMI, um, I think, uh, or living in a bigger body or, or whatever yeah. way people would like to put it. So actually, when that represents most of your client group, um, you know, it's worth looking at different perspectives around that. And I think I think there's a partnership between Slimming World and a certain well-known yeah, free body, um, which I'm not going to go into here, but um, it's it something that, to, to me anyway, sort of puts my hackles up a little bit. And so it's definitely yeah. good to signpost people towards other ways of thinking about that and looking at that. Well, especially um, if, you know, as, again, as women, a lot of us have been round and round and round that dieting merry-go-round for 
our entire lives, basically, since we were children. And, you know, why do why do we suddenly think that uh, when we're pregnant, <laughs> now is the time to start a new diet? Um, it, it really just it kind of baffles me. Um, and the, the scientific evidence points to the fact that 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 diets don't work in the long term for most people. So um, again, you know, why would we add that pressure onto pregnant folks when there's so much else that, you know, we, we have to worry about? And there are also other things that we can do that are perhaps more self-caring that result in the same outcome, which is a healthy pregnancy. Absolutely. So we don't need to reject that approach outright. We can just maybe look at other approaches and say, okay, so hey, so what does this other approach maybe have to yeah. offer that can still achieve a good outcome? Um, yeah, definitely very wise words. And so going back to your own journey, Laura, as somebody who was moving through this system and moving through her pregnancy in, as you've said, um, what is maybe a, a smaller size body, um, how... How did you feel about your own body being that as it was as your pregnancy continued and you approached the birth? What what was your sort of vibe as you looked at how your birth plans were changing and and how your body was changing as well? Yeah, I think um I I was very fortunate that I really enjoyed being pregnant and to, you know, um all intents and purposes, had a fairly straightforward and, and easy pregnancy, which I think was very protective in terms of my body image. The thing where I sh- actually really struggled was um, that I developed pelvic girdle pain in my last last month, last four weeks, really, of pregnancy. And so where my, my body image was less around my weight and shape and more to do with the functionality of my body and and being in a lot of pain and so that kind of was the dominant um like thing in my mind at that time was was less about you know oh am I getting stretch marks or whatever you know Mm -hmm. that, that people tend or that diet culture teaches us we should worry about and was more actually about the functionality and like how can I feel a bit better in my body, um, which was really difficult because it was just as lockdown hit, all um, physiotherapy services had been suspended. I couldn't go and see my doctor. Um, I couldn't go swimming, which had been something that I had really had had really helped me. And I think probably why I didn't get pelvic girdle pain sooner was because I had managed to stay active. Um, and so, yeah, that was really where I struggled with my body was more, you know, how I was feeling in it in that last month rather than how it looked. And and I think it could have been very different for me if I hadn't done, you know, if, if I wasn't doing the job that I do mm-hmm. um, and, and wasn't able to kind of work through, you know, some of the, the underlying body image um, stuff before I got pregnant. It's interesting. You know, I think a lot of people will wonder how somebody whose job is thinking about bodies thinks about her own body as she goes through this this really formative experience. Yeah. Um, I think we all share these kind of vulnerabilities and, and concerns to a certain extent. So yeah. then there you were going into lockdown. Your son was born in May. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then, so there was the big, the big moment, the big day comes, the birth itself. (laughs) And I mean, for everyone, I think that's quite a transformative moment in how they see their body and how it functions. And then afterwards, how it feels and looks. Yeah. Um, how, how did that go for you, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, again, I think um, for me, it, it was more about the functionality of, oh, I can hear someone kicking off in the background there. Um, yeah, it was, it was more about the, the sort of functionality. Like, obviously, you, you spend nine months growing this baby, and then they're gone, and you're belly just like it feels like jelly your core is obliterated at this Mm -hmm. point and I think for the first few days after I gave birth I was like I felt like I was kind of almost hunched over there was nothing keeping me upright if that makes sense and it was just the strangest phenomenon that nobody had prepared me for was that I felt like I'd had this hole in my, in, in my, like where the baby had been almost. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's, if that, if this is everybody's experience, but I just felt like I couldn't even quite hold myself up. And, um, and so that was really a strange experience was getting used to this new body that not new body. It's the same body, of course, but um, a, a new experience of my body and and it really took me a while to kind of feel um, like grounded in my body again after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It didn't help that my baby was in the NICU, but, you know, that's a, a whole other podcast maybe. But um, it, it took a little while to kind of feel a bit more, I suppose, stable in my body after giving birth. And, and then, of course, my shape had changed. And I suppose the way that I approached that was really just with a buttload of of self-compassion and um you know just being kind to my body giving it what as best as I could what it needed in terms of rest in terms of you know eating and drinking enough and and eating and drinking things that were satisfying and comforting and um, moving it in ways and dressing it in ways that were kind. Um, so, so with no expectation that I was going to like fit back into skinny jeans. In fact, before I got pregnant, I bought um, clothes that were loose and um, maybe even a size up, knowing that I would, I would need that after, after the baby was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of, yeah, I kind of have, had prepared for that ahead of time, I think. So um yeah, just trying to be really, really kind to my body because it had done this phenomenal thing. I love the phrase that you used about using a buttload of compassion for yourself. And I think that's so wise and it's so smart and so needed for women, actually, at every stage of motherhood, really. But especially in that really, really vulnerable postnatal period where physically and metaphorically, you feel almost as if there's nothing holding you up. You know, yeah. you, you use the phrase of feeling like there was almost this hole in your core that nobody had told you about. And that is yeah. really evocative, actually. I find that really moving. And I think that we're, we're not great in society, um, and some of us even as midwives and caregivers, in encouraging women to be 
accepting of that change and gentle with ourselves about that change. Um, and it's great that you felt that you you actually even prepared to be gentle to yourself about that change by buying bigger clothes and expecting things to be different. And I'm really interested to hear, Laura, even in your sort of wisdom as somebody who's very aware of your body and these messages, did you find even in that sort of newly postnatal period that even you were receiving messages from maybe people or the outside world about how your body should be functioning or looking? Did, did you find that you were sort of aware of sort of new and different pressures in that way? For sure. Um, the the postnatal space is really rife with insidious messages about how a person's body ought to be after giving birth. I remember we have that week by week baby book that somebody gave us and, you know, my husband would read it to me in the the wee hours of the morning while I was feeding the baby. And I remember at one point, you know, it, it has sections for, you know, what to expect from the baby, but also what's happening to the mum's body. And it would just, you know, every other week would be, oh, your body should have lost this much weight by now. And um, after this point, you're no longer going to ha- lose weight um, from breastfeeding. So you need to like up your game. I'm paraphrasing what it said, but yeah. it's like, you need to start going hard now on the exercise. So I was like, no, 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 no. I need a big nap. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I need. Um, and ag- again, you know, I have done a lot of work around this. This is my job, but for other folks who are feeling really vulnerable, which you do after having a baby, I can see how those messages just, you know, they, they infiltrate and, and they become, you feel as though they, they have to be priorities in your life on top of the 10 million things that you have to do as a new parent. It's, yeah, it's shocking to me how how skewed our priorities are for for people who have just given birth, like as a society, what we think that they should be doing and what they we think that their priorities should be and the pressure to look a certain way and snap back um, as though, you know, like we said before, as though your body hasn't done this incredible thing and just needs a rest and needs like a little break <laughs> mm-hmm. um, rather than, than having to worry about what you look like um, and how much you weigh and what you should be eating and we bear a kind of collective responsibility as a society, don't we, for um, allowing these messages to proliferate. So given that sort of somewhat bleak view of the, the messages that we're sending out there and encouraging, what advice do you think you would give now, Laura, looking back to new mothers who are maybe struggling to recalibrate their relationships to food and to their bodies in the postnatal period. I'm imagining there might be some women out there listening right now who are doing a night feed at four in the morning or um, maybe still on the ward and thinking, oh my God, you know, my belly's like a burst balloon and I'm looking online, all these other images and help. Where do I start? Well, I I think what you said there about images is is really an important thing place to start is just thinking about like what are you consuming on social media there are so many idealized images of pregnant people and postpartum period on social media we I I would really really recommend either looking at more diverse body shapes and sizes and and looking at 
pregnancy from all different types of people of different backgrounds and perspectives or not looking at them at all Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, because you know I know we talk about this um, or I talk about this a lot you know um, cleaning out your social media feed in you know relation to like fitspo and um, clean eating accounts and things like that just more generally but I think it's even more insidious in the in the pregnancy space, um, those images are, you know, styled and um, filtered, and maybe even photoshopped in some cases. Um, and and I I don't think that they're helpful to see. So so maybe even just not looking at those images at all, looking at or you know, because I know we're we all need that like four a.m. Mm-hmm. scroll while we're yeah yeah we're all there feed so so finding things that feel really supportive and nurturing um and that that build you up and um rather than than kind of make you feel bad about yourself so really just checking in and being honest about you know the things that you're consuming online even if it's not pictures of bumps and you know perfect bumps but um you know it could be just like really glam looking mums when you are feeling like trash (laughs) you don't need to see that um so that yeah I think that is is the first thing is is kind of clearing out your social media feed and like I said before practicing a lot of of self-compassion and in terms of the way that you look after yourself around food and nutrition I think it's not not restricting not trying to force your body back to this um arbitrary uh you know like an arbitrary dress size or or trying to fit into your pre-pregnancy genes because although it's still you and and your body it it has changed and the more we resist that by trying to force it to be something that it's not i think that that causes us to have worse body image if we are drawing more attention to our bodies because our clothes don't fit or because we're hungry, then we think about them before we become more preoccupied with them rather than, um, you know, leaning into our, our new bodies and being more accepting of them by clothing them and feeding them the way that they need to. The most important piece of advice, I think, around nutrition that, that I could give is to follow your appetite. Follow your hunger, honor your hunger. It is sending you a message. Your body has, it's doing a lot of work to heal and repair, um, you know, regardless of of the way you gave birth. Um, But especially if you've had any birth trauma, um, if, you know, physical trauma, emotional trauma, you know, just be really kind to yourself, give your body everything that it needs to heal. Um, And that starts with giving yourself enough to eat, enough to drink. The postpartum period is not the point to to start um, restricting what you eat, because that is that's not going to facilitate healing. Um, and, And if you are breastfeeding, you need that additional energy to support your supply and to build your your supply up um my friend put it a really brilliant way you know that oftentimes breastfeeding is used as like a carrot because you allegedly burn in inverted commas more more calories but actually I would reframe that as you need additional calories to support breastfeeding rather than than you are burning 
Mm-hmm. more calories. Does does that make sense? Have I explained that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, so rather than saying you can fit into those skinny jeans because you're breastfeeding, we really should be reframing that and saying, well, you probably will need to take on a bit more food every day if you're breastfeeding so that you can nourish yeah. yourself. Yeah. And so you yeah. can nourish your baby hundred yeah. yeah. um, percent. And so, you know, if you are, you know, at three o'clock in the morning raiding the peanut butter jar, like go for it. That's, that's what your body needs in that moment to support the, to support breastfeeding, to support repair and healing, um, you know, on, on whichever level, you know, I say, say, um, that, that, you know, not all food goes in our stomach. Some of it goes in our heart because it feeds us up, you know, fills us up emotionally. And sometimes food can be, um, comforting and, um, reassuring, you know, when we've been through this really transformative experience. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it should be a given that we give ourselves basic sustenance when we've just produced another human, that we give Mm -hmm. ourselves enough food, we give ourselves enough fluid, we eat what we want. But yet somehow that idea seems kind of provocative and controversial, which is, which is a bit crazy. Well, it goes back to the messages that we, we receive all the way through pregnancy and in the postpartum period. And there are quite a few um, pregnancy apps that have recipes in them that have calorie counts on them. You don't need right. to do that. You don't right. need to see that. It's not helpful information. Um, and and so yeah, there is this real expectation that almost as soon as you give birth that you need to start um, like micromanaging the food that you eat. And you know there are whole like books dedicated to you know, like clean eating in the postpartum period. And they're not written by, by, by people who actually have any expertise in, in nutrition. And, you know, oftentimes they're influencers or celebrities uh, who've come up with their own ideas of, of how to nourish people. And that might have worked well for them and that might be their experiences and, and that's great. But that doesn't mean that that's appropriate for you and your body. Um, so you don't need to eat your placenta if you don't want to. You don't need to. Um, you don't. You don't need to like follow some kind of like macrobiotic diet after you've given birth. It's not going to um, necessarily help you heal and recover from from um, pregnancy and from giving birth. I think the best thing that you can do is just offer yourself a wide variety of foods and honour your appetite. Excellent message for us all to take home. Definitely take or leave the placenta sandwich. It's up to you. (laughs) Um, And I think speaking of messages, I'm aware you have somebody else demanding your time, but let's just one last question, just to look back at kind of messages that that you've maybe received in your pregnancy and your birth. Um, Obviously, this podcast is called What the Midwife Said, and I like to finish each episode by asking my guest if there's something that was said to them by a midwife or could be another healthcare provider during their pregnancy journey that has really stuck with them. And it could be for good or for bad. I'm sure you've got a few. But can you think of something to share with our listeners that someone said to you during your journey that has really stayed in your head? So my midwife, Philippa... um, I remember going over my birth plan with her and she's, she's from Manchester. She's from the North and she's like very like salt of the earth straight to the point, which I really appreciated. And she just looked me dead in the eye and was like, 
you are not going to breathe this baby out. <laughs> and what she meant by that was, you know, there, there are a lot of messages around, um, uh, you know, meditation and hypnobirthing and things like that, which don't get me wrong, I think are fantastic, but they don't negate the fact that you are going to have to push like hell to get that baby out of you. Um, and I think that was really the point that she was trying to make. And it's just stuck with me because it's, it's funny. It's hilarious. You're not going to push that baby out. <laughs> so yeah, that, that is good. really stuck with me. Yeah. And so in the end, um, did you breathe the baby out? <laughs> no, you needed to get hoovered out. <laughs> well, there you go. So it was a team effort. And, and that is just the way it is for so many of us. And that is yeah. absolutely fine. <laughs> um, that's great, Laura. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing your personal and professional insights with us. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure it'll be really beneficial for so many people listening. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of What the Midwife Said, hosted by me, Leah Hazard, and produced by Steve Bland of Bambi Media. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Laura Thomas as much as I did. Please get in touch if you have anything to say about our conversation. Please do remember to review and subscribe to the podcast so that other listeners can find us. Share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag What the Midwife Said, and tune in next week.